your Bibles to John chapter 2, and we have been looking at the life of Jesus um, these last, uh, today will be the third, the third in a series on the life of Jesus, and we're looking at Jesus through the, uh, the glasses or the, uh, the, the magnifying glass of the book of John, and in John chapter 2, and I just want us to read through this. Usually, Pastor Adam reads the scripture, but he's going to be coming up here at the end to take the communion with us. So let's read in um, John chapter 2, and let's ver- read verses um, 1 through 11. Can you do that with me? Okay. Um, John chapter 2, and on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of of purification, each holding 10, I'm sorry, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine... But now you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless this sermon, bless this message. Or as we look at the life of Christ in his first miracle that he does, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we see here in the book of John, chapter 2, that this is the first miracle of Christ. And his miracle is characterized as a sign. It's the first of the signs that he does in his ministry. And signs always point to who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And Jesus here uses, uh, and actually John here in verse 11 says that this miracle was a sign. So as we interpret this miracle, as we interpret this event, we need to understand that this was a sign that had a symbolic meaning. Um, One writer put it this way, John's account of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry highlights the fact that Jesus replaced what was old with something new, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. In this case, new wine replaced old water. Later in the chapter, and this whole chapter is about new things in in chapter 2, but later a clean temple was, uh, a clean temple replaced a dirty one. A new birth replaced an old birth. Living, flowing water replaced well water, and new worship replaced old worship. The larger underlying theme continues in this chapter to be the revelation of Jesus Christ's identity. And really, that's what Christmas is really about, us understanding who Jesus Christ is. We've said this before, that that there's a time in the old Christian calendar called, um, um, and I only know this... (laughs) Epiphania, I don't know how we say that in English. Epiphany, right? How do you say that? Epiphany, there we go, thank you. And I only know that, in, um, I think, in Polish. But 
Epiphania is a word that describes the full revelation of the full image of who Jesus Christ is. And this is a celebration in the dark times of the year of the light of Jesus Christ and who he is and the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's why I love the book of John. And that's why I thought that at this time of the year would be a great time to really look at the life of Christ here. Here in John chapter 2, we're in a wedding feast. Now, um, I lived overseas. I lived in Poland and I lived in Ukraine and I've been to, I've traveled to some Muslim countries and whenever a wedding would happen there, it would really be a big thing. Here in the States, a wedding maybe lasts the afternoon, right? But overseas in some cultures, and I don't know about South Africa, Pastor Adam, but in some cultures, this goes on for four days or it could even be a week. Can you imagine having a wedding feast for a week? Like people would just eat all day, drink all day, go to sleep, come back and do the same thing just day after day after day. And this was something that was really a huge, huge celebration. Now, as we look at these verses together, keep in mind that this is a sign, this is a symbol of something much more deeper in truth. And so feasts at that time, feasts were very, very valuable. They were something that with who you ate with meant just intimacy. When you sat down to eat with somebody, as we looked in the book of, uh, the book of Psalms in chapter 23, we looked at this about the table that was set before us in the presence of our enemies, David said. Feasting was really a sign of just intimacy, communion, and fellowship. And who you didn't eat also was, spoke very, very deeply. Like in the, in the New Testament, there is scripture that tells us that there are certain people that we don't eat with that are living in sin, that are, that are living in compromise and just will not repent. And so feasts here were a huge, huge thing. And like this feast in the Middle East at this time, this was a time that was really to celebrate the couple. Now, the cultures in the East can be, and still in some ways today, are cultures of shame, shame cultures. And what that means is that there was a lot of meaning in the culture and cultural events that if you did not do it a certain way with a certain quantity, then there was shame on you and shame on your family. And in this case, if you were to have many, many guests come to a wedding, and if it wasn't just, if you had things running out, if you had, if you had items, in this case here, wine running out, then shame on you. Shame on you. And it was actually had a superstitious kind of a sense to it that there was this shame and people would never forget. Oh, do you remember so-and-so's wedding? Yeah, they ran out of food, right? And for the rest of their lives, there was this sense of like shame. And that there was a, you know, that our wedding, that there was a lack and our guests were not taken care of and our guests were not fed and they didn't feel, they didn't feel that it was enough for them. And so this couple and family were running out of wine, which means that they were going to be shamed. They were on the verge of experiencing a lot of shame and they were going to be shamed by their, by their family and by their, by their friends. And when we look at John chapter 2, I want to back up a little bit and zoom out. John chapter 2, the first miracle of Jesus' ministry is something that is, I don't know, when I would read this before I, before I studied this, before I understood what was happening here, it was really kind of a head scratcher. You know, like here's Jesus, he's just starting his ministry. This is the third day third day is very, means a lot, actually. The number three means a lot. It means resurrection. This is uh, actually seven days after he meets John the Baptist, and we talked about that last week. Seven days after his inauguration of his, of his ministry by being baptized, 
three, a, a few days later, four days later, he meets Nathaniel. And then three days after meeting Nathaniel, he's here. And he's here, and, it, and, and John, John, the, the, John the Apostle makes it a point to say, this is day number three. And so this being a miracle about a sign, we need to understand that, that everything in this, in this miracle has a symbolic and deeper meaning. And so this culture, this situation is about ready to um, pour on shame on this, on this couple. And Jesus has been invited to this, to this event, Jesus and his disciples. And so what we can read into that is, is that, that the couple that was getting married, they were friends or they knew Jesus. There was some friendship there. There was a relationship there. And Jesus shows up with his disciples and his mother to the wedding feast. Now, this is a little bit in contrast to John the Baptist. He was kind of reclusive. He kind of just hung out in the wilderness. He was like in another dispensation. He was, just a, he was from a different cut. Jesus here, in, the other, in, 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 uh, in contrast, is a person that was with people. He spent time with people. He was among the people. His disciples were among the people. As a matter of fact, in, Gen- in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees had a problem with the disciples of Jesus because they were always saying, well, look at John's disciples, you know? They're more reclusive. They're more stoic. They're more obedient to the Old Testament. But look at your disciples. They eat at the Sabbath. You know, they're breaking all the Sabbath rules. And then Jesus says this in Matthew 9 to the accusers of his disciples. He says, he says, he says, when you don't have the bridegroom, when you don't have the bridegroom with you, when you don't have the, when you don't have the groom with you, as in the Old Testament, you do that, you fast, and you obey, and you, and you really look at the laws. But he says, when the bridegroom is with you, in Matthew chapter 9, you feast, you celebrate, and you enjoy. And so we see this here, this feast, and the, and the wine runs out. And there's four things I want to consider here in this message with you. Number one, what do the jars represent? Why are there jars? What do the jars mean? Number two, why does he talk with his mother the way he did? You ever read that before? Like, woman, <laughs> you're killing me, right? <laughs> and you're wondering, like, why does Jesus talk like this to his mother? How can he say that, right? And then number three, what does the wine mean for us as a Christian? And then number four, intimacy, the intimacy of the bride and the grooms. So number one, the jars. These jars were ceremonial jars. They were, they were used for cleansing. They were part of the Jewish culture, part of the Jewish ceremonial policies where they would, be the, they would be used for the cleansing of sin, the atonement for sin, the, and really the rescue from shame. These jars are just sitting there because when Jews would come to an event like this, if you were a good Jew, you'd be cleaning yourself up a little bit before you went into public. It's kind of like these days today when you're just using hand sanitizer before you shake hands with somebody, right? These, these, the Jews, were, 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 they were cleaning themselves. They, they would do this profusely. And... And when they did this, they did this because they were, they, just in case they shook hands or they came in co- contact with Gentiles. Unless in some way they were like dirtied by the, the gross Gentiles that are... So just in case that there was, there was some cross-contact or cross-contamination with the uh, Gentiles, um, they would have to cleanse themselves. And so these jars were at these events, and they were ready to be used. 
and they were probably not very full at this point because there were so many people at the feast. And when Jesus here does the miracle with the jars and the water and what we see later with the wine, Jesus is making a major statement here. He's making a statement. It's his first miracle that I've come, and what I'm here to do is to cleanse people. I'm here to bring cleansing that the law could not bring. Because what this couple was about to experience, this family, they were on the verge of shame. And I think if you've traveled to the Middle East, I think you can, like when we were in Kurdistan in Erbil, which is northern Iraq, um, it was very interesting, that culture there, because, and, and I'm, having a, I'm having a little feedback here, Micah, but what would happen is, is that when, when like a husband, when a father wanted to go drink with his buddies, they wouldn't, there's no, there wasn't really any bars there. There wasn't really a bar you could go to and just drink and have a good time with your buddies. They would go and they would, and they would like go find some random location on the side of the road somewhere and they would just light a fire next to their car and they would just be there and they would drink with their buddies. Because if the neighbors or if a family member saw them drinking, then that would, that, that, the, the report of that, that event would just go through the whole neighborhood. And there would be so much shame put on that person. And there would be so much like contempt on them. And so this was a shame, this was a shame-based, um, this was a shame-based culture. And the same way here with, the, with these Jews is that there was this real sense of, of like, you know, I have to really do right or, or hide my sin or hide what's going on because if I don't, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be, in, I'm going to experience public shame and nobody wanted that. And so Jesus here is, is here starting his ministry third day, right after, you know, on the third day after meeting Nathaniel, he begins his ministry and this is his first miracle. And the, and the theme of the miracle is cleansing cleansing from sin and shame. And remember what we said about shame, right? And we could probably shut these monitors off here because I'm getting feedback. Uh, remember what we said about shame before. We said that shame is when guilt has been internalized. When you and I have done something wrong and we don't understand the provision for our sin and we don't understand why things have happened, like why it's happened and how we can deal with that sin, when we don't understand the cleansing and the um, forgiveness of sin, then what will happen is, is that that guilt gets under our skin and it begins to create not only a guilt for the sense of what I did wrong, but guilt is, shame goes one step farther. That shame, there's something wrong with me. That there's something wrong with me, that I'm, that I'm not right, that something is wrong with me. And so Jesus comes in, this is his first miracle, and this is a statement that he's, really making number number two really what is he what so what is he saying to his mother and why does he say it like this to his mother and i think that the if we could understand that um um the the term woman here is used and we could probably just turn this down micah because it's it's i'm getting some feedback here just quiet it like turn it down woman here seems like it's a cold and and like a very impersonal and disrespectful way to, to, to associate or to speak to his mother. And I think that that would be that way in our Western culture, that, that it's 
that is disrespectful. But in the Eastern culture, for a, for a man to say to a woman, woman, that wasn't as disrespectful as we would look at it and see it today. And as we actually see here, Jesus relates to his mother right up until the beginning of his ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, he, he, says, to, he says to his mother here in chapter 2, woman. And what that means is that there is a, um, there is a shift in Jesus' relationship to his mother. And he's no longer calling her mother. He's calling her, I mean, he's calling her woman. And what he's saying here is, is that, woman, um, wh- why does this, why is this my problem? And I think if you look at the text and you think about it, and you kind of understand a little bit about Middle Eastern culture, really the conversation could have gone on like this. Um, Mary comes to Jesus and, and whispers, they have no wine. And he replies, we are guests. And what is that to you and me? That's not our problem. And then he says, my hour, he adds, is not yet come. And what does that mean? Why does he say that? What he's saying, in essence, is saying that Though they may run out of wine here at this feast, when I give my feast and when I put on my feast, there will never, ever be lack of wine. There will never, ever be lack of provision. And this is what he's saying. He's talking, he's referring to his death. And, and it's very interesting because Jesus is looking towards, and as a single person, I remember being single. And if you're single here, I think you could probably really relate to what I'm going to say here is, but when you go to a wedding, you have these thoughts that really go through your mind. And Jesus here is single. And he's not in this sad state, but I'm sure he's aware of his singleness. And a single person, when they go to a wedding, they're looking at the couple, they're seeing the joy, the happiness, and there's something inside of them that thinks, maybe one day for me, maybe that'll happen to me. When is my day coming? And there's this thought, like there's this kind of like this hopeful look for most single people, and for me it was that way, is there's this hopeful look towards the future that one day, one day, I will be married, and that will be a glorious day. And Jesus is looking like that. He's looking forward to that wedding day because it's very interesting. The beginning of Jesus' ministry begins with a miracle at a wedding feast. The end of the story is Revelations 21, and how does that end? A wedding feast. Jesus loves this whole topic and this whole idea of weddings because he will be marrying his bride, us. And in, in Revelations 21 will be a great, wonderful feast. And so Mary's saying to Jesus, please make, please bring some joy to this, to this wedding feast. She's looking at her son like, maybe you can do something about it. Now we have to go back a little bit and understand uh, what the guests and what the, 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 what the chemistry of the, the guests were, is that guests would come, and during the wedding, if there was something that was needed and there was a guest there that could help out, they would jump to action. And I remember when we were living in Ukraine, my first year there, I wasn't married yet, and we had a team that had joined us from Baltimore. And we were there, and we were traveling somewhere, and... Um, we got this invitation to go to a Ukrainian wedding. So we went, and I think it was like day number two or something. And we get there, and, um, you know, they're, they're having this celebration, this music, Ukrainian music, which is Ukrainian wedding music is probably some of the funnest music you could ever listen to because 
The Ukraine has a lot of Jewish influence because of history. A lot of Jews lived in Ukraine, in Poland, and in Russia. And so there's this, sometimes you can hear in the, in the Slavic music, you can almost hear this a little bit of a, a tone of maybe like Middle Eastern or like even a Jewish sound to it. And so we were at this wedding, and we realized there's no photographer there. No photographer had showed up. They didn't have a photographer. And they were just having fun. So what they did was is that they, you know, we had cameras, right? Being Americans, we're always walking around with cameras. We, we didn't have smartphones those days. We had, like, these, these plastic cameras that, you know, you just snap pictures, and you bring it to the, to the photo store, and they're going to develop the pictures for you. So we started snapping pictures for the wedding for the wedding um, couple, and it was so beautiful because later on we got to go back and visit them and give them the pictures and just have a real opportunity to share the gospel. In the wedding, there would be individuals there that could jump to action to help. And so Jesus here sees the opportunity to take advantage of a natural circumstance, natural problem, a natural situation, and he's going to bring in some meaning to it. And he's going to bring in some eternal, um, eternal significance to it. And so what he does is he says, he says, so his mother sees, somehow understands that Jesus is going to do something. And she says to the servants in the, in the wedding, whatever he says, however strange it sounds, however random it sounds, just do it. <laughs> just do it. Believe me, just do it. And so Jesus says, Jesus says, take these these jars and fill them and there was probably about 180 let's see about 150 gallons of water in these jars and they filled them they were like these really tall jars and they filled them up to the brim with water why to the brim because i think jesus wanted to make sure that nobody thought he was going to pull a trick like secretly pour some wine in there and fill them to the brim and then after you've done that draw some of it and bring it to the master of the ceremonies and so they do that they bring the water, and as they're drawing the water out, and we don't know when this water turns to wine, there's no magic hocus-pocus event where Jesus says, presto, now be, now be wine. But as, as they, in obedience, as the servants, take the wine, take the, take the water or the liquid out of the jars, and they bring it to the master of the ceremonies, he is amazed, and he says, usually what happens is, is that at a wedding, when everybody starts getting drunk and intoxicated, that's when you bring out the bad wine. But he calls the, he calls the bridegroom and he says, you waited, till the, you waited till the end to bring out the best stuff. And I want to say a couple things really about this wine and what this really means for us. Wine was drunk at these kind of events, not in a glass, but in a cup. And we know in Psalm 23, the cup has a lot of meaning for us as a believer in the, in the Old Testament. This wine was referred to as new wine. This was wine that was described as the best wine in Matthew 9, verse 17. And I will just say this, and if you have questions about it later, we can talk about it. But in Matthew 9, verse 17, there's, there's a Greek word there then for wine, and that refers to wine, two different types of wine. This general word was used for fermented and unfermented wine. The unfermented wine here is being referred to as new wine. This is what was being brought to the... Um, to the maitre d', to the, to the master of ceremonies. And as he does that, this is this, and we don't really know, I mean, if you haven't traveled, maybe you don't, when you think of like this grape juice or this communion juice or what Jesus is using at these events, you were thinking maybe like some kind of an unfermented grape juice. In the Middle East, 
in that part of the world, they have this grape juice that has been prepared and it is so fantastically savory. That's the only word I can think of. It is so like when you sip it, it's just such a, it's such as this burst and this like explosion of just taste. And it's not like Welch's grape juice, but it's a grape juice that hasn't fermented yet. And it's this really amazing stuff. And when you drink it, and when we had this in Ukraine, they have it, there's a word for it. Uh, when you drink it, it's like, you can't really guzzle it down. You can only sip it. And this is what was being brought to the, to the master of ceremonies here. And wine here was used. And when we take communion, we'll take communion today. That's what we're celebrating. Wine is really a sign. Actually, wine is really only mentioned by Jesus here. And then at the end of his life at the Last Supper, it's mentioned twice. And he says at the Last Supper that he would not drink of this cup until the wedding feast in Revelations 21. Jesus is at this, at this wedding, and he's thinking in his mind, because he can see eternity in, in, a, in, a, in a flash. He's looking and he's thinking about the wedding feast with his bride, with us. And this, is so, this has so much meaning because the cup for Jesus meant a cup of cursing and it meant a cup of judgment that we would, that we would later on see at the, at the cross. It's very significant because in the Jewish mind, they understood that the first miracle of Moses was what? What was one of the first miracles of Moses in, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 20? He turned water to blood, didn't he? He had, in, the, in, the, in the, um, uh, one of the plagues, one of the first plagues that, that God was judging the Egyptians that had the, the Hebrews under their, under their dominion and control, one of the first miracles was that Moses had the water, God turned the water to blood. And so when Jesus here is doing this, if you were an attentive, if you were an attentive Jew and you understood, like most Jews, Jews did, they understood what were the miracles of Moses because he, he, he was Moses. He was the, the giver of the law. They would understand and they would remember that Moses' miracle was turning water to blood. Jesus here is turning water to what? What? Wine, right? And what does wine signify here? At the Last Supper, Jesus says, this cup, this cup of this grape, of this, of this wine is a testament of my blood, of the new covenant. Doesn't that bring new meaning to us? When Jesus hears his first miracle saying that this, that, this is, um, that this is a cup, this is a significant, this is a sign of how God would deliver Israel from the Egyptians and that how how God is saying now I'm going to deliver Israel from your sins. I'm going to deliver Israel from your shame. I'm going to deliver Israel from all of your troubles and all of your brokenness. And he does this in Psalm 104 verse 15. And again, we looked at this in Psalm 23 when we were looking at that chapter, that the cup that David talks about in Psalm 23 is this cup in Psalm 104 verse 15, where it says, it talks about the, 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 the cup of wine which brings, us, which brings joy and gladness to a man. What is Jesus saying through this, through this miracle? He's saying that, he's saying that the, the joy, the wine that brings the joy to the heart of a man is really this, this, this wine, this new covenant, this new covenant wine, this, this, this covenant that he's making with us, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing for sin, and the rescue from shame. His blood, in essence, he's saying, 
through this illustration of doing the miracle with the wine, he is giving through his illustration here that the, blood, that the wine really signifies the blood of Christ that was to be shed for us. Think of that today, that, that whenever we partake of this cup and we can partake of it in private communion with Jesus Christ or we can do it corporately like we will t- do today, that this cup is a signature. It's a, it's a sign of our new covenant that we have with Christ through the blood of Jesus Christ. That means that this blood, and just like wine, if you drink wine, and, and if someone that drinks wine, and I personally, I, I personally don't do that because of just personal, like I personally abstain from it because in my life and in my family, nothing is ever good has ever come from it. That is every, every instance from in my growing up was just, was, and like we see 75 verses in the Bible just refer to wine as like <laughs> not really a great thing. And so what wine does in its, what wine does in its, in its, um, uh, in its attempt to, it, it takes away, um, it takes away the, the temporary sense of problems and difficulties and, and, and things like that. And what will happen is, is, that, is that wine has this, has this way of intoxicating and making us forget about present circumstances. But that will go away. That will, that will fade away. The blood of Jesus Christ, the new wine, is something that cleanses us. And it takes away, the, if I could use this word in a sacred way, the intoxication or the quickening or the, the renewal power of, the, of, of this new wine with Jesus Christ takes away the memory and the emotions and the pain of sin, past sins. It washes, it reminds us of the washing away of our sins. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. And this blood of Christ has forgiven us and has made us clean, has made us whole. And it's made us perfect and made us beautiful. And the last thing I want to look at here is the bride and the groom. You know, I've done a few weddings, and it's really an amazing experience that when we do a wedding, you know, the pastor's standing here, and usually the groom is standing right there. We're, you know, the pastor's standing behind the groom. And, and so it's kind of a unique, it's like really an amazing view because as the bride comes out, um, in the back and just comes around the corner and starts coming down the aisle. Um, to stand there, I'm seeing, as the pastor, I'm seeing the bride through the eyes of the groom. I'm seeing the groom. I'm seeing his eyes. I'm seeing it's one of the most amazing things to see is the guy who's going to get married, his bride is coming down the aisle. And, and just to see as, a, as the pastor doing this, seeing his eyes. And seeing the bride through the eyes of the groom is really amazing. And when Jesus Christ looks at his groom, at, at his bride, he is amazed because she, there's no imperfection. There's no imperfection about her. Um, she is dressed up. She looks amazing. She's an, she's, it's incredible. And the whole audience is just amazed at her beauty. You, you know, like when she comes down the aisle, just there's a sense of like, you know, people stand up, but like there's this, natural sense just to stand up in awe like wow this bride's coming down the aisle and the groom sees sees this bride that he's going to marry and he's almost in some way intoxicated by her beauty intoxicated by how beautiful she is that there's no spot or blemish on her he sees her like this is this is this is the moment that i've been waiting for and jesus does the same thing jesus looks at us and this is a long processional. I can, it's almost like, it's, it's like we, are, we are in this procession, walking through time, walking towards our, 
our bride, Jesus Christ, which we will soon be um, married to in Revelation chapter 21. And Jesus looks at us. and He's looking at us like the, like the groom looks at the bride. And he's astonished. He's amazed. He's, in, he's, just, he's in awe and wonder of how beautiful she is because of what? Not because of some intoxication that comes and goes, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He himself has washed her. He himself has washed her. She has not washed herself. She could not wash herself. We cannot wash ourselves. Our wine runs out. And this is how I want to just end this message is that, is that you know, all other wines are going to run out. But the wine that, the new wine that comes from Jesus Christ, that blood never runs out. It ever flows. It ever continues to wash and cleans us. John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, it says that if we sin, we have an advocate who has laid down his life. He's poured out his blood. And he, and, and he continually washes us from all sin and unrighteousness. He washes us. He washes us. This is what I love to think about in Christmas time, because as we as we go through these chapters, as we go through these these, uh, we're going to spotlight on different moments in the life of Christ and in in the book of John. We're going to see that every everything that he says and he does really relates to this truth that we are new creations, that there's a new covenant in the blood. And I like what David said in Psalm one thirty nine as he's meditating on the thoughts of God towards him. Think about that, right? That David is in Psalm 139, he's thinking about Jesus, he's thinking about God. And he says, such knowledge is too much for me. I can only sip this. It's like I can't gulp this down. And this is, what, this is how we live, is that day by day we're sipping, as it were, on this communion cup of the New Testament forgiveness that we have. It's something that's so wonderful and so, so outside of our reach of fully understanding in one moment that we have to slowly sip it. And this, this, um, this new wine that they have like in the East and Ukraine, it's not something that you can really drink quick. It's something that you have to take your time in drinking because it's so strong and it's so savory. The knowledge of this cup takes away all of the imperfections that we have. Drink of this cup. Jesus... David said in Psalm 116, he said, I will drink of the cup of salvation. As we drink of this cup day by day, it takes away, the blood of Christ takes away any memory and any, any scars and any brokenness and any, any awareness of ourselves. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that, 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 that the worshipers have no longer any sense or consciousness of sins because they've been purged by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we gather together, we partake of the blood of Christ. We, we partake of it. Here's the application, and I'll close. Any other wine than this is going to run out. Anything that we try to use in our life, and I'm not just talking about alcohol. I'm talking about anything that we use in our life to take away the pain. Number two, do whatever he tells you to do. Like Mary said, whatever Jesus says, just do it by faith because he gives the most unique answers in how to be healed. Number three, learn how to draw on the truth about the new covenant blood and apply it to your life today. Just apply the finished work. I was thinking about how, how Peter prayed three times a day, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and then in the evening. And he prayed, and he prayed. He communed. He communed with Jesus Christ, with his, with Jesus Christ his Savior. How, how Jesus prayed. I had this, read this quote this week by D.L. Moody, 
great man of God. He was a pastor in, New, in, uh, in Chicago, really used mightily by God. And then one day after the Chicago fire burned out the entire city, most of the city of Chicago, he was in New York trying to raise money for rebuilding buildings. And there the Lord met him. And he doesn't really talk about what happened, um, but he had such an amazing meeting with Christ and that enraptured and that just, just captured him. And this is what he wrote. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Imagine that. I went back to preaching. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truth, yet hundreds were being converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all of the world, it would be a small dust of the balance. And the last thing I want to just say about this is don't settle, anything, don't settle for anything less than intimacy with your groom. Don't set, settle for anything in your intimacy with Jesus Christ. There's nothing that could take it, that could take its place. Have a rich prayer life. Learn how to access this intimacy of prayer now and don't wait till later. I just want to say this about prayer. It's a prayer for me. It's something I'm still growing in. It's something that for me has just become a wonderful way to commune with Christ. Last January, um, we took a month, and some of you here remember that. We took a month and prayed. We're going to do that again near the end of January. We're going to take a month of prayer and fasting. And what God did in one year here is just so incredible. I can't even explain it. And we're going to do that again by faith. And when we pray and we seek God's face, this is an opportunity for us to have, com- have communion with our groom, to, to, to partake of that cup of the blood of Christ, that forgiveness. Amen. Mm-hmm.